Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is episode 26 of Yogaland. On today's episode, I talk to Kate Holcomb. If you're not familiar with Kate, she's like the unsung hero in my yoga world, at least. And she calls herself the accidental yogi and she tells that story, which is kind of funny. She is a yoga teacher and founder of the Healing Yoga Foundation in San Francisco. And she is a direct student of TKV Desikachar. So if you're not familiar with who that is, I'll give you like a quick yoga history primer. Desikachar was Krishnamacharya's son. And um, Krishnamacharya is responsible for teaching Desikachar. And then before him, two other teachers, Sri Patabi Joyce, who was the founder of the Ashtanga yoga lineage, and BKS Iyengar, who was the founder of the Iyengar lineage. And so Krishnamacharya's students were really, th- those three students, he, studied, he obviously taught many more, more people than that, but those three students are kind of like the grandfathers of yoga in America, in the West. So Kate sort of accidentally ended up being a very close student of TKV Desikachar's and studied with him for many years in India and um, was so close to him that he called her his American daughter, which is so sweet. And one of the main things that Desikachar conveyed to Kate was the teachings of the Yoga Sutra. So she is an absolute authority and expert on the Yoga Sutra, and it's something that I've always wanted to learn from her directly, and I have been able to do that in bits and pieces, but not in a very long, cohesive way. So I thought for the podcast, I would ask her to share her three favorite sutras. And when we first had this conversation, she kind of laughed and said, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to boil it down to three. And I said, well, you kind of have to. She basically did for this episode. I mean, the reason I wanted her to focus on three was because I wanted to get in some of her background story and how she found the practice and and how it changed her. And so that's what the top of the interview is. And then the later half of the interview is three sutras that she used to help her through her diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. You know, when we when I ended the interview, I turned off the mic and I like begged her to come back and do another one and share more um, insight into really useful and applicable sutras for everyday life. And she said she would do that. So I'm hoping that that's going to happen and that I can run these two episodes, one right after the other, and you will get even more of her amazing, lively, passionate, informed teaching. So here we go. Here's part one of my interview with Kate Holcomb. And I want to just make a quick note that I am still, you know, making my way around sound and and making the audio sound as as great as possible. And uh, there were some quirks with this interview with Kate. So just hang in there if you're interested in the interview. It does get better as the interview goes on. And hopefully you won't notice the quirks at all. So I want to start way back in the 1990s. I want people to get to know you a little bit. So I I reread your story, like I knew your story, but I reread it and you came to yoga in kind of a circuitous, serendipitous way. Um, You were at Colgate and you went to India for a study abroad program. And it just so happened that the director or co-director of that program, Mary Louise Skelton, was a longtime student of TKV Desikachar. She was actually a longtime student of Krishnamacharya's. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So she had originally been studying with Krishnamacharya for maybe 30, 35 years. And Krishnamacharya had just died in 1989. 
And I first went in 1991. And so um, Mary Lou you know, not right when Krishnamacharya died, but she switched over and started studying with Desikinchar huh. maybe 10 years, eight years, you know, a few years before Krishnamacharya died. They had made that transition. Wow. But yeah. I just missed Krishnamacharya by a couple a of years. A couple years. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's amazing. So can you tell the story of how you actually came? It's kind of an interesting story of how you actually came to meet him. You had an accident, didn't you? Yes. So um, I... As you said, I went to, um, as part of the study abroad program, and I was actually interested in social work. So I went there um, as a sociology anthropology major, and I was really interested in, again, my main interest was social work, not yoga at all. And I had been working um, through the university. I started working with the state social welfare board and the Indian Child Welfare Society on their um, female infanticide prevention program there, which is exactly what it sounds like. On the community working in the city in the outskirts of Madras, just trying to educate on the value of women and girls and mm-hmm. so nothing to do with <laughs> yoga. And even though Mary Lou knew that that was my interest, she, even from the very beginning when I first got there, she really encouraged me to study the Yoga Sutra with Desikachar. She said, I know you have this interest in the social work and you want to do the female infanticide prevention thing and great. And I think you'd really love the yoga philosophy. And I really encourage you to not miss this opportunity to study with Desi Kachar. So I did start taking that class, the philosophy class with him, which was offered, I think, twice a week in his home. And I still have that notebook, which is one of oh, my wow. favorite yeah, prized, you know, really neatly so organized. <laughs> he explained everything so clearly. And I still really vividly remember that time because I tell my students that I was more of the eye roller in the back of the room, you know, so I would, he would say something and I would raise my hand and be like, wait a minute, you know, I'm not so sure about this detachment stuff or, you know, are you trying to tell me that I can't be feeling or passionate or caring, or I'm not going to be some mindless, you know, robot, philosophical drone. You know, he was so patient with me and Mary Lou was too. I would go after his classes, the sutra classes. I would go then ask Mary Lou, now what's the deal with this? And I really, you know, I'm sure they loved it. They loved that you were interested. So that was one side of it, but I didn't really get into it until, um, so that program started in August, I think August, September. And in October, middle of October, um, I was at a crosswalk with a crossing guard on my bicycle with a group of people, you know, it was a Sunday morning, actually, I looked both ways and way, way down the road was this tiny dot, you know, the crossing guard said, go ahead. And um, I went across on my bike and a good friend of mine, who I'm still in touch with on the program was right behind me. And that tiny dot way down the road was a motorcycle that had been going so fast that by the time I was in the middle of the intersection, the motorcycle just smashed right into me. And uh, my bike was in pieces. I mean, literally just everything went flying. My shoes were 50 yards in different directions. My backpack, my bike was in pieces, all these little boys and that were sort of there that saw the accident, um, they pulled me over onto the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, people, like these little boys kept bringing me parts of my bike, you know, or like a shoe, or, you know, here. And um, thank God I didn't hit my head. I landed in a great way. I actually landed on my sort of butt and back. Wow. And I think that very likely I, I broke my tailbone for sure. Um, I didn't 
I mean, I hesitate to say this. I, I was reluctant. I, I didn't have an x-ray. I didn't want my back, you know, my ovaries, <laughs> uterus, you know, anything x-rayed at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. So um, they did x-ray my leg, which was also completely mangled. So I had a mangled leg. I couldn't walk. And I had ribs that they knew were broken. I guess I had ribs that were sticking out. And you stayed conscious through the... Um, I did. Believe it or not, I um, definitely was very dazed. You know, my friend who was there with me. And this is, I, you know, I was brought back to my room. And I remember some, uh, you know, other people carried parts of my bike, you know, back to my room. And then Mary Lou brought me to the hospital and they x-rayed my leg and I was checked out. And I actually... the. Funny thing is I still have the bill, that hospital bill from that time, which was 80 rupees. Wow. Which is you no know, less than two dollars. I mean, right now it's about a dollar twenty-five. Back then it was probably like a dollar eighty or something. Yeah. That amazing. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I got great care. Um, and then I went back to my room, but I was always very I never liked a lot of attention. And so like I just didn't want to make a big deal out of it. I was sort of like, you know, let's just not. So I didn't want to go home. I just kind of wanted to, you know. Like home to the States. You didn't want to go home. I didn't want to go back to the States. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to stay in India. So I didn't want my parents to know. I just. Oh my gosh. That's like every parent's nightmare. (laughs) So Mary Lou kind of, you know, when she found out, she was sort of like, hey, all right. It's great. You want to stay in India. But we got to deal with this. And it was very clear that I couldn't walk or sit or actually really stand very comfortably. I mean, I spent pretty much the first 10 days just flat on my back, not able to move much at all. And then she said, let me take you to Deskuchar. And I was just in unbelievable pain. I mean, that was the really interesting thing, too. Or I guess not so surprising, but that was my main memory of it was just in such pain. And um, now, of course, I realize like, oh, right, there would have been ways to manage that or deal with that. But so Mary Lou brought me to see Desikachar one-on-one privately. And that was my first introduction to therapeutic yoga and the therapeutic application. I mean, as part of the Colgate group, I also had agreed to do the sort of group asana class that they had twice a week also so I did the twice a week philosophy classes with Jessica Char in his home and then I did twice a week these asana classes and quite honestly those didn't throw me I had been an athlete in high school and college and it felt kind of like meh yeah yeah exactly it didn't that's how my first few yoga classes were yeah So she brought me to see Jessica Char and my main memory of that was just being just delirious from pain I mean I hardly remember even being able to see anything and being brought into this room and they laid me down on the, you know, this cot table that they use there. And uh, Mary Lou was there the whole time. And I don't remember much about that exactly what he had me do, but they gave me a paper. Jessica Char wrote out these really simple asanas, exercises in, in this order. And I still have that too. Nice. And I just started doing it. I mean, what else was I going to do? Not only did I recover amazingly and it helped manage the pain and I was able to be more mobile and continue with the program and continue what I wanted to do there. And I didn't have to go back to the U.S. So I kept doing it. And Mm -hmm. I went back to the States the months later when the program was over. I did go see the orthopedist and the specialist. And I remember them saying me and I brought my little paper from Desi (laughs) Char, And the doctor saying, 
wow, I mean, I don't, whatever it is you're doing, we've never seen anyone recover from that kind of an accident like this. I mean, you have just recovered amazingly, like beyond wow. what we've ever seen. And I said, keep doing it. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. So I kept doing it. And then my chronic headaches I had my whole life went away. And my chronic insomnia I had struggled with my whole life also went away. How long was the little sequence he gave you? Um, not that long. Like That's 15 minutes? Yeah, i yeah. say 15 minutes. I mean, so it was something you could do every day and it wasn't like some huge mountain to climb. You just did it and it became like part of your routine. Yep. And it was actually so simple. I mean, if you look back on it now, I yeah. it broader, I can show it to you. It's beautiful. Yeah. So simple, so straightforward, so doable. Didn't take a lot of time. Do you remember when he met with you, like how he assessed you? Did he kind of just look at your body? Did he palpate? Did he have you move at all? So that's, that's also a great question. I'm sure that they had me move. One of the things um, culturally, you know, I've only studied with Desi Kishar. I haven't studied in other traditions or with anybody else. That was my first introduction. And then I just stayed with him for, you know, 25 years, yeah. right? You know, up until the very end. So I also got the same thing. So even though I, I think it started as cultural, it was really impressed upon me that you don't touch your students. You oh, need to touch I didn't your know students. that. There's no need to. I think that if he did, if there was something, I mean, I do remember, I mean, number one, I was in such pain, but because Mary Lou was there, I think that if he wanted information or something, I, I do remember a couple of times him asking Mary Lou to tell, you know, touch whatever, tell him. If something hurt or, yeah. Um, so they always ask permission. So that's the thing too. You very rarely touch a patient or I'm sorry, not a patient. I, I felt like a patient at the time, <laughs> but you very rarely touch a student. You do really feel that there's a need to touch a student. Then you of course ask permission mm -hmm. and um, make sure it's okay and appropriate. Um, so that was, there was minimal and um, that was my first introduction to that. Yeah. He did have me do some movement in that assessment because he had to make sure that it was doable for me and that it was comfortable. Right. So even though I was in pain and had limited movement, he was looking to find the movement that not only I could do physically, but that wouldn't trigger additional pain or tension someplace else. Because mm -hmm. it could seem like the best movement in your head or on paper, but it's not going to help you at all if it causes more pain or if it's not comfortable. He definitely took his time assessing that. He for sure um, took my pulse. I mean, that's something that he was a, really a master at huh. too, that he, you know, he always touched students to take their pulse, but very... Because he was young. trained in Ayurveda as well? Yes. Okay. I didn't know that. So when did you go from that experience to having being a one-on-one -on -one student be with him? Because that's really like the linchpin of this approach to teaching, isn't it? That it's it's one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I don't know if you know <laughs> this answer already or not, um, but this is um, actually, it's the main reason why I'm doing this work and doing what I'm doing is I had that first experience in India. I went back to the States. I saw how much, you know, the practice that he gave me helped me. And I very much just was conscious of that. This yoga stuff, it's great. It helped me, helped my insomnia. I'm going to go on doing my social work, you know, live my life. You know, how nice it helped me a lot, like physical therapy. That's how I saw it. Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is a nice little physical therapy thing. 
So then what happened is in 1993, I went back again to India. I mean, I just loved it so much, even in spite of being smashed by motorcycle <laughs> on the street. Um, I loved the experience so much that I went back again in the fall of 1993 um, with the um, Colgate group. And Mary Lou actually stayed um, back in the States because she had had a recurrence of breast cancer. So they assured me actually at that time when she had that recurrence, her prognosis was very grim and they weren't expecting her to live very long. And I actually was, had become very close with Mary Lou. She had been sort of this mother, grandmother, auntie, you know, mm-hmm. positive female role model that I had never had my whole life. And so here was this person who had become incredibly important to me and yeah. really credited with saving my life in a lot of ways. And so the thought of leaving her was also unbearable, you know, given this prognosis. And she really encouraged me to go back to India. I was actually going to be gone a year. I was going to stay with the Colgate group in Madras that fall and then stay in India and Southeast Asia for the rest of the year. So not knowing if she would still be alive when I came back, she had to, she worked pretty hard to convince me to go back to India. So I went back in 93. I actually helped a lot with the Colgate study group then because Mary Lou wasn't there. Mm. I'd done it. So I was more of an informal like leader in a way. Yeah. yeah. That, that year. And then here's what happened is I came back from being away for a year in 94 and I spent, Mary Lou was still alive. And I worked out my schedule. I was waiting tables then. And I worked out my schedule so that I could spend most of that next year with Mary Lou in Hamilton up at Colgate. And I had a friend who had a house up there too on the lake. And so I could stay there and see Mary Lou every day. And so up until that point, Jessica Char was my my first teacher in a sense Mm -hmm. and how I thought of a teacher but he wasn't, or the American idea of a, a teacher and that he taught me things, right? But, um, and I learned from him and he certainly helped me, but Mary Lou was my real heart connection. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand yet the importance of that or, or the, the possibility sure. of what could happen through that one-on-one teacher-student relationship, which is what then happened later. But so in that year with Mary Lou, um, the, the most crucial part in my life was the last three weeks as Mary Lou was dying, which was in 95, the spring of 95. And I spent every day with her wow. the last three weeks. What an amazing um, relationship. It was incredible um, in uh, being with her through her dying process in the last three weeks of her life. And what was so striking to me, actually, was here was a woman who was in her early 60s, right? She had a lot she wanted to live for and do with her life. She had a loving family and, you know, kids and grandkids, and she had work she cared about and wanted to continue. She had students all over the country. So she was in a situation, right, that she wished she weren't in. Mm -hmm. She would have preferred a different circumstance. And she was also in incredible physical pain. The um, cancer had metastasized to her liver and her spine. So it was very uncomfortable for her to move. Uh, Her liver had stopped functioning at that point. Her legs were swollen from the liver not being able to do its job. And I have to tell you quite honestly, being with her every single day, she was not suffering. And she wasn't zonked on morphine i mean she had pain control but she was so clear she was totally present Hmm. totally clear right up until the end that lab is with her right until the last 
day. And she was so clear. And we had such a, I have such vivid, clear memories of that time. And we talked a lot every day. I mean, we laughed and we talked about real things and we talked about light things and mm-hmm. thing. And she had this, you know, the treatment made her throat dry. She had these Werther's like caramel, you know, caramel sucky things, you know, and, and um, I can't look at those, of course, without thinking of her. And so it was this amazing, almost surreal out of time moment with her and why it was so transformational for me with two things. Number one is every single day she kept stressing to me, you can trust Jessica Char. He will never hurt you. Mm-hmm. He will never be inappropriate. You need, you know, he will never harm you. You can trust him with your life. He will, oh, he will help you. He will take care of you. And I remember at the time being like, okay, I mean, he's just this older teacher. I was sort of shy, right? Like he's this older man, you know, I was yeah, very, him. Like, yeah, he's this older man. And, and I didn't really understand why she kept impressing this upon me, like drilling it into me, like. And of course, she knew my background. So, you know, some of that made sense. But I realized later that she, you know, when she died, I felt like I had been orphaned in a sense. And she, I think, knew that. Oh, she wanted to help you provide like another relationship that would be supportive. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's so sweet. And she knew that I'm pretty, um, it sounds funny to say, I mean, I'm pretty shy and reserved in that way. Like I would never presume or I would never reach out. And so she really, to him, to Desmitra, because I thought of him as this. Right. Like other, a you know, revered yeah. older teacher. Yeah. yeah. And so what happened in that time that was so significant, I mean, so I, I want to loop back to my experience with her is that, um, so she, number one, really impressed upon me, you know, don't be afraid of him. You know, you can trust him with anything, just really drilling that in almost to the point of annoyance. I have to say, I remember just being so like, wow, all right. Okay. You know, it was almost like this last, you know, she was like, promise me, you'll Wish, yeah. him, you know, promise yeah. me you won't, um, and so I trusted her, right? So this was this big part that she conveyed and, and really impressed upon me. And then more importantly, even at that same time, you know, watching her, it was so clear to me that as I started to say to you, you know, here she was in this circumstance that she didn't want to be in. And she was in incredible pain. And yet she really wasn't suffering. And that blew my mind. That is mind blowing. I couldn't understand how that could be right that she could be actively in knowing that she was in the dying process very much wanting to live still being in incredible pain and still there was so much authentic she was still her authentic self I mean that's what was shining yeah she was joyful she was also sad you know but but whatever feeling she felt was from this place of her authentic self and of course that's the goal of yoga Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that we we do these practices so that we can know and connect with and act from that place of the authentic self no matter what the emotion is right Mm -hmm. so that we can feel sadness or joy or even anger or disappointment but it's very different from that place of our authentic self than say from the mind body emotional reaction right So I had this experience of her just totally being so clear and centered and, and really in her life. And like being able to live even though she was dying. Exactly. Which I think that's like so much of what we all fear is that like the process of dying is, like you said, so filled with suffering and so painful and so horrible. 
but she, right. That's amazing. That's amazing. So she, it was such a profound experience for me to, to see that and witness that with, and go through that with her those last three weeks. The other quite extraordinary thing that happened, which I really believe was her sort of final parting gift to me um, before she died was that Colgate had hired me to um, take her place to be the co-director of the study abroad program. And so really without me realizing, and even in the middle of her dying process, right, she had set this up for me. For you to be able to go back. So three weeks after she died, I was back in Madras and heartbroken at, at her loss, at her death. And I showed up, you know, I trusted her. I showed up at, um, I think, Desiachar and his wife, Menika, who is like my mother. I mean, I just deeply love her. I, they invited me over. And I remember that moment also walking down towards their path, the front door. And I remember him. And remember, this is India. Like, they're not, you know, affectionate, huggy. And I remember him. The feeling for me was... And sort of holding out his arms, his open arms, and it felt like he had rolled out the red carpet for me. And I felt like I was this broken little bird Mm -hmm. and that he just enveloped me in his wings and pulled me in, you know. And then that was that. And, And years later, I actually asked him, did Mary Lou make you promise to take care of me? You know, did Mary Lou ask you to do that? And he said, no, that she didn't. But that he and Menica, his wife, had just taken me in. And I'm sure you've heard this. You know, he always called me his American daughter. Yeah, I have heard that. And they, um, you know, since that moment, they really just took me in as their daughter. Like whether he sensed it or he somehow knew it from before or he knew how close I was with Mary Lou. And so from that moment, they, you know, here was this situation where I was being paid by Colgate to be in Madras and live there and work. And so I had this incredible proximity to him to be studying there every day. And the student-teacher relationship that, so I, I mean, really, I started by answering your question with the personal part of it, but he also took me on as his private student, really officially then, because I told him about that experience with Mary Lou. And how incredibly moved I was um, those last three weeks of her life and just how I couldn't believe her yeah. that that was possible, right? To, to, to not be happy about your circumstance, not be able to change your circumstance. And yet she so clearly was able to influence her experience of her circumstance. Yeah, right. right. So that it was positive and joyful. And that's yoga, right? right? That's what I teach my students is that we're, you know, these tools are to help you feel empowered to influence your experience of whatever circumstance you have, no matter what it is, even if it's something that you know the ultimate circumstance (laughs) which we're all gonna do yeah yeah so I told him about that experience with her and I asked him I said will you help me in in my understanding of yoga in the United States at that time was that this this was my limited experience of yoga in the United States at that time which was 1995 I didn't see that happening I thought of yoga as just an exercise or uh, people did it to be fit or 
And so I asked him if he would teach me. I said, will you please teach me how to help people in this way? I mean, I saw how much. It was really clear to me that it was Mary Lou's 35 years of studying with Christian Machari. Mm-hmm. And I said that to him. I said, it's so clear that her 35 years of studying with your father was what was the support for her. And, you know, Desi Kachar always told me, um, he always, one of my favorite quotes of his is he always said, um, yoga is a rope. Right? Yoga is something that you can hold on to in the storm, in the blizzard, whatever it is, to help you find your way back home mm. to yourself. I and I, it was so clear to me that that's what Mary Lou had, right? She had this anchor in, you know, all that was going on around her so that she never lost sight of herself. Mm. She was as a person, right? Separate from the circumstance she was in. And so I, I asked him if he would help me um, be able to help others that way and, and, and be able to do that. I said, that's what I'm interested in. You know, that was sort of the same social work drive mm. for me. And how can I help people in that way, the way that Mary Lou, um, that yoga helped Mary Lou. Yeah. And so he really that's beautiful. took me seriously. And I have to say that over the next, you know, several years of working for Colgate and living in India and studying with him every day, it was an incredible experience of studying with him for hours every day. And if he didn't do it directly, he had Menica teach me, you know, observation and this and that. And he actually sent me to his Ayurveda teacher. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, he had me studying all these different, you know, Vedic chanting and yoga rahasya and Bhagavad Gita mm. and, you know, all these different aspects that he wanted me to really, and he really took the, crux of the you know therapeutic application and working with people individually and the you know yoga sutra of course and you know oversaw all of it including spending time with me on my personal practice and um, so it was just an unbelievable gift that came out of two amazingly really hard things I mean number one my initial accident right I tell I tell people I'm the accidental yoga teacher mm-hmm. right, right it's not my literally plan. yeah and that was in 91 and then um, 93 with Mary Lou's diagnosis and then 95 really being with her in her dying process is what really shifted it for me to um, make me really clear that this is what I wanted to dedicate my life to helping others in the same way as I saw it. It helped Mary Lou. And at that point, helping me through my accident again felt like nothing right. you know, compared to right. how I saw it help that other level, like totally different level. Yeah. so many things I want to ask you. Is it okay if I ask you a breast cancer related question? Just, it won't, it's not the super personal. I mean, it is personal in a sense sure. and I can edit it out if you don't want to. Okay. I'll, okay. I, it's just sure. that when you, when you said that, when you said that you witnessed her, Mary Lou, just, I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but like dealing with her circumstance and realizing that that is separate from herself, the limited amount that I know you and I'm not, making this up 
the like emails that I've gotten from you and like the updates and things through your diagnosis and your treatment and the essay that you wrote for the Bayes anthology, which I'll mention at the end of the show so people can go download that if they want to. I was just generally struck by how much humor you had through the whole thing. I mean, seriously, like you had that kind of like playfulness and humor about the whole thing. And I'm sure that it was hard and I'm sure that you were fearful and I'm sure that you had crap days, but like I watching you and I went through my treatment first and I feel like through, mostly through my diagnosis, but even through my treatment, I was in this like liminal state of panic. And I remember feeling to myself like, well, this is when you get tested, right? Like this is when you see, you know, if your practice is actually um, working. And I just was really impressed by your ability to, to manage that. So I wanted to ask you the question, you know, how much of that do you think is like your innate personality versus the yoga versus working with people for a long time who've been through chronic diseases and, and conditions and things like that? It's a great question. I think that it was probably a combination of all of those things, actually. At the time that I was diagnosed, I had been studying yoga now almost um, 25 years, I think. And really studying it, you know, as I mentioned, I mean, especially, I, I don't mean it like, <laughs> sorry, I, I don't but mean just, that yeah, I, arrogant. Yeah, no, I know you. what you mean. I like mean you were, the, when I say really studying it for me, um, I guess to clarify what I mean is when I was first introduced to the Yoga Sutras in 1991, um, I really fell in love with the text then. And I stayed with it and studied it intensively for the next, you know, even to this day, I mean, I still just bow down to that text and I feel so grateful to my students. I get to, I just said to a group of my um, students uh, last week or the week before, I mean, almost every week, I said, how lucky, I'm so lucky that I get to work with this text um, every single day. Mm -hmm. I'm working with the sutras and studying them. And that's been that way for 25 years. Mm -hmm. So so that's what I mean by um, when I say really study for me, um, it's Yoga Sutra. And I, and I have an asana practice and pranayama and meditation, and I do all that. And it's definitely helped me um, by far, um, the not just the study, but the practice and the application, the practical application of the yoga sutras for me over the years has been the number one, by far and away, um, tool that has been the most helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Also, I'm most passionate about. So when I had my own diagnosis, um, I, I sort of joked with people that I, I was almost high, to be honest with you, from how well the yoga sutras showed up for me and supported me at multiple levels it was extraordinary to me I still um it just makes me smile and feel so grateful that I had that and I can talk more specifically about parts of the sutra that were so helpful to me but but you did ask about my work in the cancer field and so looping back to Mary Lou so once Mary Lou died in 95 and then I spent all this time um, I mean I had already been studying with Deskachar in India and working with Colgate but in 95 I was really clear you know that shifted how why how you know it shifted my focus to also wanting to work with people therapeutically and help support them with these tools around 2000 2001 I um, moved back to the states 
back to San Francisco. And actually in between there, even before that, in 1998, I had a six month gap where, um, so for example, I, you know, when I studied Sanskrit at Berkeley on this short little window in 96, um, which is where I met my husband in San Francisco, because I was back in the States for this little chunk of time in between the Colgate stint mm-hmm. in India. So throughout, you know, part of that job was having to come back to the U.S. to to do some work and get things settled and then go back to India for a chunk of time. So I had this small window of time in 98, which was actually when my husband and I then got married. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> that little break in 96 and then he came back to India with me for a while. And anyway, when we were back in the States in um, 98, I had this conversation with Jessica Char um, when I was about to go back to San Francisco and he said to me, what are you going to do with your time there? Um, just six months. And I said, you know, I really am inspired to work with people with cancer. And, you know, just out of gratitude for everything I received from Mary Lou and having gone through that experience with her. And I told him I had heard of this little place north of San Francisco that um, worked with people with cancer that I wanted to check out and see if I could volunteer there. And Deska Char, without missing a beat, he says, oh, Commonweal. Wow. I know Michael Lerner. You must call him. You must contact him. Here, bring him these books for me. Please bring him this letter. So I went. Okay, this part of your life needs to be made into a movie. Because this is amazing. <laughs> it's, it is pretty extraordinary. Michael and I laugh about this moment in time because sure enough, I got back to the States in January of 98 and I called up Commonweal. And, um, you know, Commonweal was, you know, they just... Michael does a brilliant job of just running things with the people he knows. And it was a lot smaller than, and, um, you know, he didn't, there wasn't a lot of volunteer opportunities. You know, Michael had just learned that, Hey, I'd like to gather my team of people who come and it works really well. And this is how I do it. And so I, I wasn't given, um, there were no promises made, right? So even when I talked to him on the phone, Michael said, mm, all right, well, uh, yes, I know Jessica Char well, and no one's ever really been sent to me. So why don't you just come? And could you come on this day? So it was this crazy stormy day. I drive out to Bolinas. I um, meet with Michael. I bring him this stack of books from Jessica Char and this letter that I, would, I think that I still have somewhere because I think Michael gave it back to me. And Michael and I still laugh about it because the letter from Destiny Sharp basically said, you know, dear Michael, hope you're well. This is my student, Kate. I'm sure you will find some good use for her. Like you need to put her to work. Yeah, oh, find a place for her. Yeah. He said, I'm sure you will find some good use for her. Yeah. And so Michael, I remember him looking at me and, and quizzically, and he said to me, wow, no one's ever been sent to me before. What am I going to do with you? And so he then took me out and just grilled me on this intense personal interview for two hours, which wow. was also great. Yeah. But he, and I just laid it all out on the table. Here I am. This is who I am. So I did volunteer with Commonweal over that six months. And then I got um, married in September. And then I went right back to work in India. And I was there. My husband and I were there for a year and a half or two. Again, just solid. Wow. there, Working for Colgate and living there and just loving our life there. And I was studying every day. Um, so then when we came back to the States, um, I went back to Commonweal and I started teaching the yoga for um, Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen um, had retreats for physicians through Common Meal at that time. She did about five a year. And so she had me start teaching the um, yoga for those programs. And in 2007, 
then Common, when Michael asked me to start teaching the yoga and coordinating the Cancer Hope Program at Common Mill. So, um, and in the meantime, I had another dear, dear friend of mine, Trish, who was also a longtime student in this tradition who had um, also died of cancer. And I spent uh, a lot of time with her when I was pregnant with my first um, son, Calder. I spent time with her toward the end of her life. And um, as she was in her dying process and saw, you know, had that experience as well. And she also went through it just so beautifully and gracefully and incredibly, you know, again, because of her, I very much believed her connection, her strength of her practice, yeah. the yoga that had served her. So, I mean, I say that with that background, you mentioned Commonweal because at the time of my diagnosis, I had pretty much been in the cancer world. I mean, really since 1993, since wow. Mary Lou had her mm-hmm. And, you know, going back to that moment in 93, I remember Mary Lou telling me a story, maybe even before her recurrence, which again, so just epitomized yoga to me, um, is that she told me this story about how after her surgery at that time, they were doing lumpectomies and she had had these different surgeries, but the movement then, you know, was to sort of save the breast. And I remember her telling me that, they had tried to save her original breast and then they ended up taking the breast after these multiple surgeries. And she said, when she came out of the surgery, the doctor kept saying, Oh, you know, we're so sorry. And you know, your breast and this and that, and we can save it and it doesn't look good and your scars. And she told me that she looked at her doctor finally. And she said, doctor, I am not my breast. (laughs) And that, I mean, you can see I have goosebumps. I mean, that stayed with me forever just seeing her convey that those words to her doctor you know i am not my breast this is not who i am right this body it's a part of me it's not who i am and so that stayed with me that whole time and then working in the cancer world and and i have to say i have many many friends who have gone through successful treatments and many friends who have died as a result of, of different cancers and many from breast cancer and many young women mm-hmm. like me and many younger than me and mm-hmm. probably more fit and healthy. So when I had my own diagnosis, I didn't have the luxury. Um, it was, it was great. And you know, there were positives and negatives, like anything. I didn't have the luxury of any denial. Right. So it's right. not like I could pretend or, or just fool myself and say, Oh, but I've been a, you know, I've been doing yoga for 25 years and I meditate and I do my breathing and I do my anti-cancer diet and green tea and I exercise every day. I'm an athlete and I'm going to be fine, right? Because I knew that that's actually not true. And then you probably also didn't have the guilt side too. Like, oh, did I not? I mean, because I, I had a little bit of that. Like, I ate too much sugar. I like have, you know, I drank too much in college. No, 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 no. It just seems like... Yeah, you had a balanced... Well, and then that goes back to the reason that I had some of that balance. It wasn't just because I felt like, quote, I had done everything right before because people do feel like they've, quote, done everything right and then freak out because they do the, why me? How could this happen? This is crazy. And then they get angry. And, Mm. you know, I've met so many people over the years working in the cancer world who, you know blame themselves or blame the stress of their life or um, feel betrayed by their body. And I've always, always been really clear. And every person I've ever worked with who's had cancer and who hasn't, I've always said, like, you did not give yourself 
cancer. There is no self-blame here. Like, this is just like a crazy thing that happens. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit like Russian roulette and how great that you're as healthy as you are and did everything right because now you're a healthy person <laughs> going through cancer and can't, you know, you're as healthy as possible and that's going to serve you really well. Yeah. Um, and there's no room for the blame, shame, guilt, regret, shoulda, coulda, woulda. And that I really got from Yoga Sutra, you know. So Yoga Sutra talks about the hey um you know 216 talks about it says hey um do kamanagatam which is basically prepare for the suffering for lack of a better word that's yet to come well hey um means the suffering that can be prevented which is really the avoidable suffering so 216 isn't saying oh if you do yoga it's all going to be great and your dog's never going to die and And you're going to live in a constant state of bliss right nothing bad's ever going to happen i mean that's not true Mm -hmm. we know that that that's not true what 16 is saying is that hey there are challenges and heartbreak and hardship and circumstances in life that are going to be devastating and that's unavoidable but what is avoidable The avoidable suffering, what I call the suffering on top of the suffering, is in fact the, quote, suffering that you can do something about, which is the blame, shame, guilt, regret, coulda, shoulda, woulda, why me Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. So the rumination too. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. No. Better you? No. Better your neighbor? No. I mean, you wouldn't wish it. I mean, my God, Mm -hmm. I haven't gone through... I mean, I went through the, as my oncologist called it, the full court press, you know, six months of chemo, radiation, surgeries, you know, the whole deal. And you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. No. So it again goes back to the sutra part of here I am in the circumstance. I can't, I wish I could change it. And, you know, my daughter had just turned one, uh, my youngest, um, right after my diagnosis. She turned one just before. Mine my was turned two just before mine, oh, like a month okay. before. Yeah. And so here I had this little toddler daughter and I had three other older kids, you know, four young kids. And it's like, okay, Kate, what are you going to do? You can sit and cry and piss and moan. And and of course it's sad and scary and worrisome. And, you know, I didn't have the best for lack of a better, you know, I didn't have the best diagnosis, right? Not that any diagnosis (laughs) is good. No, I know what you're saying. But, um, But I remember being pretty irritated, actually, with my medical team when I was first diagnosed because I was a little bit like, why are you guys being so negative? Mm -hmm. I've had that too. Why are you talking to me about recurrence rates? Like, I haven't even, you know, let me do this and see how I do. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a, you know, it was like, don't, don't start throwing numbers at me before I've had a chance to see how I do. And so I hope they were respectful of that because I hear that. I mean, I had the same experience and I always read, you know, about doctors saying like, if you are in the cancer field, you should be respectful of what kind of patient wants, what kind of information, like some patients want to know everything, every detail, every statistic, every da, 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 da. And some do not. And that's okay. Like you don't have to. So anyway, I mean, I think that's understandable. I I wanted information for sure. And I can handle it, but it was sort of the negative thinking that you know like my oncologist told me I would never have a complete response that there would be always some residual hmm. thing and I sort of 
resented that. And then as it turned out at my surgery, I did. Have oh yeah, you did. That's response. right. Good for you. And girl. Um, the whole, you know, UCSF, they just cheered me like the nurses. And when I came back after and they handed me my pathology report and they were like, Oh my God, do you realize how rare this is? Wow. Frame it. Incredible. <laughs> I remember my oncologist saying, like, aren't you glad that I told you that it would never happen instead of the other way around? And, you know, I was, I was like, well, no, I would prefer a little more encouragement and I'm happy that it worked out great. But, um, so it is, it's, it's so interesting navigating. And that's also a great example of navigating. So here you are in this position, right? So I was in this circumstance that of course I wished I wasn't in. But then I had to navigate everybody else's responses around it. I found that so hard. And I still um, find it hard. Yeah. And so I have to say, going back to the sutras and back to Mary Lou, so back to remembering her saying, okay, that she's not her breast. It was like, oh, right. I mean, whether I've worked with people with depression or anxiety or chronic illness or chronic pain, I would teach the same thing to them. You are not your diagnosis. This is just something that's happening to you. And then of course you have to deal with and move through as thoughtfully as possible and take seriously, but it's not who you are That's at your core. That's not who you are. Yeah. And that was huge for me. Um, so, you know, just hearing you say that out loud is like healing for me. (laughs) Seriously. Uh I mean, we need other people to sometimes remind us of these things and, and help us. And no one knew in my life to say that to me. I think I, I knew that on a certain level, but it's different when you hear someone else say it to you. It's, it's helpful. Well, that's one of the foundational principles of Yoga Sutra that I just love so much is that the underlying foundational, just main principle of Yoga Sutra is that who you are at your core, at your essence, is this pure, perfect, beautiful, <laughs> shining self and that due to experience or trauma or events in life or neglect or whatever that shiny authentic self just gets dusty or maybe gets crusted over or covered up or harder to access and you know Desika Char always used to say yoga is just a cleaning process Mm. it's just a you know, getting out your chamois, polishing, or maybe your yeah. chisel, right? And and getting that gunk off of there, and really, you know, clearing off that. You know, one of my favorite sutras is actually two fifty two that talks about as a result of it's specifically talking about pranayama practice, but always this bigger picture. You know, it says tataha. You know, then it says um kshiyate um, prakasha varanam which means that avaranam the covering prakasha means light brilliance radiance you know kshiyate means fades away fading away Mm -hmm. reduced so i mean number one that reinforces um and there's several sutras that do that throughout that that principle of that it's not like yoga is changing us but in terms of having to add something or that we're fundamentally flawed. It's actually saying the opposite. It's saying fundamentally who we are at our core is this gorgeous, shining, brilliant light. And that as a result of yoga practices, we that, that covering, whatever blocks that inner shine fades away. So it also reinforces that it's a process that it's active, that it's ongoing, mm-hmm. that it's not like we instantly, and that it also reinforces just this. So anyway, just, just holding on to that idea that we're okay who we are. I mean, that's what I was going to say. It reinforces that we are where we are. 
and that in that process of trying to reduce that covering. So, you know, when I go back to how I see the choices that I have, you know, Yoga Sutra also reminds us that we have a choice Mm -hmm. in how we're going to respond to something. And, And ideally we come to that place of acting to the self so that I can actually respond authentically from the place of the self, whatever feeling it is versus reacting. Mm. And so that also gives me some, whatever's thrown at me, right? Mm. Diagnosis or somebody else's response, or maybe fear just shows up in me. Then I can kind of work with it, um, practice. And I have to say, looping back and crediting all the experience I've had working in the cancer world and people with cancer, both before Commonweal and at Commonweal, you know, watching how different people went through the process and their own diagnosis, that helped me a lot. I bet, yeah. I bet. Oh, I like that approach. No, that one. It's not so helpful. That is so helpful. Yeah. And so I had role models in that way. And I also had an incredible support team of, you know, doctors and integrative physicians and advocates and, you know, people around me, you know, like we were talking about Rebecca Katz earlier, who's a good friend of mine. Yeah. She did a podcast actually. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So many friends, like people who I consider, you know, both close friends and colleagues who are also in the cancer world Mm -hmm. who were an incredible support to me. So I was in this really unique position Mm -hmm. of having this really strong yoga philosophy background and practice of it. And then people who I had worked with and, and watched and, and sort of helped and midwife through it, even through the dying process. Mm-hmm. And then also um, being able to apply these tools from a place of having taught them for so long. So one of the tools that really worked for me well was um, something that I teach, have taught at Commonweal, and I think even taught with Rachel Remen's um, physicians for years and years is something called the witness practice, which is sort of loose, you know, I never learned from Desika Char, but when I started working with people with um, cancer, you know, way back when, even when I came back from India, I worked at at, um, the Osher Center here in San Francisco as part of their breast cancer complementary support program. And this witness practice is sort of loosely based on John Kabat-Zinn's, what does he call it, the body scan. But basically, it uh, it's, goes back to 135 to me. So Patanjali's, you know, in, in the sort of middle to end of the first chapter, offers all these solutions that I call the vas. You know, va means or. You know, Patanjali says, or you could do this, or you could do that, or you could try that. You know, again, showing the individuality, that. you know, the personalization of the practices, that there's not just one practice for everybody. You could... Or try this, or if that's. I bet that's helpful with your kids. I'm thinking that'll be really helpful with my kid. Um, But so here's this little unsung hero in the Yoga Sutra that often gets overlooked is, you know, 135 potentially saying, just look at the senses, like where you're pulled, where the mind is pulled, and the the direction of the senses. And so I always, um, I sort of used that and this idea of um, John Kabat body scan just calling the witness practice because yoga sutra talks about the witness right and acting from that place of the witness or the self and so it's just a simple practice of starting of a meditation basically where you observe how the body's physically feeling and it's also in alignment as you'll know as, as i start to say very much going through the mayas or what some people call the koshas you know the different 
the Panchamaya system, the five levels. So starting at the physical level and how's my body physically mm -hmm. feeling and just doing a assessment of that without any judgment. And then what are my thoughts and what's the activity of the mind this morning? And is my mind really active with lots of thoughts or is my mind less active or more focused with fewer thoughts again without any judgment mm -hmm. and um, what are my feelings mm -hmm. you know, at this moment do I have feelings that have been known to me or lingering for some time or just coming up into my awareness and just noticing them acknowledging you know again without judgment which means not trying to figure out well, where did that come from or why am I feeling that way or come on Kate what's your problem why are you still sad about that just get over it like none of that mm -hmm. right just nope I'm just gonna stay with the oh acknowledging this feeling oh okay I'm feeling a little sad today and then I also have people check in with their energy level just how they're feeling that simple practice which seems like you know nothing and everything in mm -hmm. some levels <laughs> Um, interestingly was one of the things that supported me hugely throughout treatment because mm -hmm. you know you have when you go through chemo treatment you have all these I mean unbelievable and I knew a lot of that so that also helped you know supporting people through cancer and working in the cancer world I already had a heads up of different side effects and then I used to teach this you know I taught trainings for people to how to support people with cancer you know interestingly or ironically or however you want to look at it mm -hmm. um so i knew um a lot of the symptoms and side effects which is different when you go through them so then as things like you know one of the you know there's neuropathy the neuropathy yeah mm -hmm. your, i mean for me you know some people it feels like a burning for me it felt like jellyfish stings all over my mm -hmm. hands and feet so i would sort of rub my hands together or my feet and I would laugh like, oh yeah, I'm like one of those people, like, you know, <laughs> scheming, you look weird, you're exactly. scheming. Um, and then um, one of the sort of grosser ones I would say is that the chemo um, makes your fingernails pull off the nail bed and um, which is incredibly painful. Sounds painful. And so, you know, there's a whole range. I could list lots of them, but what was so helpful for me having these the practice and that witness using that witness practice on myself is that whatever side effect came up for me I was able to you know I told people it was sort of like I was just living uh, I was I was like a living science experiment <laughs> it's like well it's like the body is a rented house that that will totally. yeah and you're and you're just living in it and you're yeah you're witnessing so that. whatever showed up yeah. I was sort of like oh wow how about that? Wacky. Nails are really pulling up there. And that is really quite painful. <laughs> and, huh, I can't really cut the fingernails too short or it makes it worse. But if they are too long, then they catch on stuff, which is just pretty <sighs> painful. And so let's see, how should I navigate that? And isn't that fascinating? And so I really have to say quite honestly, and those around me, you know, I thought a lot about Mary Lou and the influencing the experience of your circumstance, right? So here I was in this circumstance I couldn't change. So there was a practical part of me that was like, I might as well mm -hmm. make the best of it and enjoy time with my friends and make jokes. There are so many good cancer jokes out there, I have to say. <laughs> oh my gosh, you'll have to send some to me. Oh my God, oh, no, I no. had so much fun. Like, uh, I mean, which sounds funny. Like I'd go up for my weekly infusions and I'd be cracking jokes with the infusion nurses and there's just a lot of good material yeah. <laughs> that way. I mean, and my, you know, I had different friends come with me for the infusions and visit and um, we'd sort of bounce out of there and say, that was so fun. And, you know, some people who had 
heard that or you know they'd be like are you crazy like you just got key you know yeah. I was like well yeah sure I feel like I'm gonna barf all the time <laughs> and I can barely eat and I'm like super sick but you know it was great hanging out with this friend or we really had fun you know laughing about whatever and yeah well sure. it's like the it's that's the ultimate you know your circumstance is what you make of it, which is sort of what you were talking about earlier. And I want to emphasize, it wasn't like I was in denial. No, it didn't seem like I that. didn't have the luxury of being in denial. Mm-hmm. I had a good, actually, right um, the, the winter before I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed in May. I, I found my lump on Mother's Day morning. And the, the December before, three close friends, my young women, my age and younger with young kids, um, died like boom, boom, boom in a row, right um, around Christmas time. And it was just, and another good friend of mine had died in November right before that. Um, young, gorgeous, talented woman. And then another dear, dear friend of mine um, who I just love, love, I mean, love, um, just died right after I was diagnosed. So I was diagnosed in May and she died in August. Um, and she was a little bit older than I than I am, but um, not by much. And I was just heartbroken, of course, by each of their deaths and um, all of them, actually all five of them from um, breast cancer. And so it's not like I was in any, I, I just, I wasn't in any denial, mm-hmm. right? There's no way, right? So I knew the gravity of my situation. And I feel like that's important to say too, that I, you know, I wasn't using yoga or the practice or any of this to, to pretend or to fool myself. I have to say that what really helped me was having these practices of really being able to say when I would feel, you know, I, I guess whatever I was feeling, really being able to feel it from that place of the that witness or the mm-hmm. authentic self. So whether it was side effects from treatment or heartbreak over the um, missing one of my friends or the loss of um, one of these amazing, extraordinary women or thinking about their kids, you know, who, um, and my own kids, you know, there was a lot of very real mm-hmm. concern and, and fear around that. And then gratefully because I have these tools it was it was again going back to that witness practice okay here's this feeling it's a very real feeling very justified of course you know whether it's pain or sadness or worry but trying to stay as much in my center in the light as possible so that I can move through that Mm. feeling authentically rather than stuffing Mm. right so it's also not about stuffing or ignoring the feeling um, what the yoga practice really allowed me to do was really stay in myself and feel that feeling and that experience as opposed to spinning out into my mind, body, emotional mm-hmm. reaction, response mm-hmm. of like, oh my God, what mm-hmm. if this, what if that, you know, <laughs> you know, which is so easy to do. Mm-hmm. So I tell my students, it actually takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And that's what I call it practice. A lot of work. To notice that and go, oh, wait, wait, Kate. You know, I joke with my students that I'm always like, no, no, Kate, stay in the light. Come on. Yeah. Back to the light, you know, back to that centered self. And I don't always get it right every yeah. time, but it has served me really well. And that's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned from Desika Char was that you don't have to get it right every time. And um, it's okay to be human and to make mistakes and feel whatever you're feeling and not have the right answer. 
that it's actually not the perfection, it's the process. So, you know, one of the things I love about 223, and it's another one of those go-to sutras for me that I actually say to myself a lot, is it says, um, Swaswami Shaktiyoho, Swarupo Palatihetuhu Samyogaha. And so what it's saying is that even though that Samyoga, that mixing up of the authentic self or the drashtar or the seer with the mind or the lens or the drishyam, that's the cause of our suffering. It uses this word shakti, which is, you know, capacity, power, strength. And it's saying swa shakti and swami shakti. So it's acknowledging that it's not just, you know, self-good, mind bad. It's that, no, the mind, of course, is, you know, useful and uh, positive. And we need this mind or this lens for the self to see through and be, or quote, see through and be in the world. And so the reminder behind that, or that really the lesson there, and I call this, I tell my students, it's the opportunity sutra. So it's basically what it's reminding us, what it's reminding us of is that if we make a mistake, right, if we forget ourselves, or like my son um, Hayes says, sometimes I love this, he'll say like, oh, I'm sorry, mommy, I lost myself. Hmm. You know, he <laughs> behaves a way that he knows he shouldn't. And I love that, mm. right? Like, because it's really true. Mm-hmm. We behave ways that we don't want to or we wish we didn't. It really is like we lost ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're not connected with that authentic self. So in those moments of, quote, losing ourselves or not acting from the place of our best self, right? We don't need to beat ourselves up over that. We don't need to, Mm. you know, admonish ourselves or um, feel terrible about it. It can be an opportunity, right, to learn. And and basically what that sutra is saying is that when we mix those up and and make that mistake or act from the place of the mind-body-emotions instead of that authentic self, there's opportunity there Mm. to learn from that and then how are we going to move forward as positively as we can? So it's not about feeling badly hmm. about your past situation or mistakes you made in the past. It's about learning from that, seeing it as an opportunity to learn from. So, oh, right. Ugh, when I got triggered that last time, this is what happened. And I felt badly. Hmm. Right? It didn't serve me. How can I move forward? How can I learn from that and move forward positively? And so there are lots of times where I'll just think to myself, no matter what I'm feeling or frustrated or going through, and I'll sort of whisper to myself, like, okay, Kate, opportunity, (laughs) opportunity, as painful as this is, or hard as it is, what's the opportunity here? Mm. You know, what, how can I take this and move forward positively Mm -hmm. without guilt, without shame, Mm -hmm. you know, beating myself up Mm -hmm. um, or without causing more suffering? Um, yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Again, I'm just thinking of, of my daughter and like trying to, you know, she's probably a little young, but I, we do try to teach her things in that way. Like she never wants to go to sleep. This sounds so silly, but she never wants to go to sleep. I mean, it's really a chronic problem because she's always tired and it's really hard for her. And, you know, finally the other day when, and I let her sleep in and I try to make allowances to have her be as healthy as possible, but when she woke up the other day and she had to go to school and she was really tired, I said, like, this is something that's really hard for you to go to sleep. I know this, but it's 
also hard for you to not get enough sleep and you feel really terrible the next day. So like, can we, let's think about this and let's try to figure out a solution, um, you know, without, because, you know, we've tried lots of methods and like we've gotten angry and we've gotten upset and that doesn't work any better. You know, that doesn't, and ultimately won't help her, I don't think in the long run. So that's just what that reminded me of. The other thing that I was reminded of when you were talking was this is going back quite a bit, but you mentioned, you know, having small children when you were diagnosed. And I found that, and because I've had a lot of people say to me like, oh, I'm so proud of you and the way you went through things and you were so positive and, you know, you were so strong and all these things. And I'm glad they feel that way. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that that was the perception from the outside. But I, I think for me, the thing that really brought everything into such clear focus was my daughter. You know, it was just like, am I going to get up every morning and feel sorry for myself or, you know, be angry that this has happened or feel like, oh, the surgery, it's taking me a whole month and I, I feel so weak. Like, no, I wake up and I see her face and she's smiling and I'm going to smile back at her and I'm going to just try, you know, to live and like be as joyful mm-hmm. as I can for her because this is two, you know, one or two or three or four or five. These are just like, beautiful, joyful ages. Like mm-hmm. every day is an adventure for them. So that was like the thing that anchored me, I think, back to myself. And I was really grateful that I had her through that. I don't think I would have navigated it the same way. She was everything for me through that. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of uh, another, you know, made me think of role models. And I said, you know, I was lucky I had these role models and what you just said reminded me of the Life is Beautiful, you know, that film that I drew on a lot also, mm. my diagnosis. And um, thinking about that father and how, again, it, it's very much yoga, right? We have a choice of how we're going to respond to a situation. You can't change the situation. And are you going to respond out of joy and just protecting your child and that's what you're conveying? Or, you, you know, I have two students that... But actually, they're both good friends of mine that I worked with and I've used as an example in teaching people about how you never know how someone's going to respond. You know, when in the trainings that I did for people to help them support those going through a cancer diagnosis, two friends of mine uh, and one was diagnosed with, quote, like a, you know, better breast cancer. It was uh, caught earlier, slower growing. She didn't have to do chemo. Um, her son was older and grown and out of the house and she um, had a really good prognosis. You know, um, this other friend of mine was um, younger. She had two, her kids were really young when she was diagnosed. Her diagnosis was much more like mine, um, much more aggressive, much harder diagnosis, much harder prognosis, you know, had to go through chemo, the whole range. And I remember um, they were both diagnosed around the same time and watching them at that time, how they both navigated it. And my one friend would quote the, you know, better diagnosis Mm. and the older son and the, you know, she was just bereft and just racked with, you know, grief. And it just totally rocked her world. Mm. She was really debilitated for years Mm. by it. And my friend um, with the young kids, you know, was very much like the father in Life is Beautiful. Just they did the talent show at the, um, you know, cancer center and made up this amazing song about chemo brain to um, the Wizard of Oz song, The Scarecrow. And 
<laughs> um, just incredible joy. Um, she made this whole like photo montage when she lost her hair. She would go up to any one she saw who was bald, which is a lot of biker dudes and old men, and like go up and take selfies with them. Oh, I love like, hey, it. That's I awesome. And I mean, just totally approached it from a different perspective. So I also had that. As yeah. Well. Like seeing the two of them, and I was like, mm, I'm gonna do it that way. Yeah. I'm gonna be able to hold more of the joy, and of course. When you think back, like, it's almost like when you do have young children, you, you, you really don't even have the luxury, if you can call it that, of wallowing no. or feeling sorry for yourself because you really have to just show up in the best possible way for yep. these little people. Yeah, they need you. And for me, I have to say, too, I have to really shout out to my um, community of friends and the school community where my kids go. They go to the Waldorf School and that community showed up for us just above and beyond wow. it still brings me to tears <laughs> we had people you know bringing us food um play dates rides for my kids you know to soccer practice I had four kids yeah it's a lot, a lot of, of coordinating um and for my daughter um for the youngest one um we had just team you know these amazing moms from the school who would take shifts and take her you know morning shifts and afternoon shifts and some would take her all day you know take wow her to the park. yeah so she was able to be home with me and see me but like had these friends like different friends every yeah day. so I, I have great. to credit that too I mean because of our incredible community of support and all the love and support around us it, it really did allow me to do my practice, focus on myself. I knew my kids were really held mm. also by this broader mm-hmm. circle. And that also makes a huge difference. Huge. huge. Community is huge. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have to wrap up. We're just going to have to continue talking about the sutras. I, um, I want to mention, you know, before we wrap up, that the work that you do is, is not just for cancer patients, that you work with all types of people. And maybe you can talk about the work that you've been that you're doing right now or what, what you're looking forward to sure um I actually had this uh, idea for starting a nonprofit when I was still working and living in India and I talked a lot about it with Jessica Char before I came back to the states and um it was really I wanted to start a nonprofit based on the uh, KYM uh, the Krishna Macharya Yoga Mandaram in Madras that Desi had started in 76. And so in, I did a lot of that work when I came back to the States, just working with different nonprofits. And then in 2006 started Healing Yoga Foundation and then just started, it was actually Rachel Remen who gave me the great advice. And she said, just start working with people, start doing the programs. And so long before uh, Healing Yoga Foundation was even incorporated as a nonprofit, I started volunteering with different organizations and one of our first was through Compass Homeless Family Services downtown offering um, free classes to the homeless parents. That's been one of our longest going um, outreach programs and then over the years we've done programs for youth at risk. I started a program at um, La Casa de las Madres for women facing domestic violence. We had a program at the VA um, for the vets dealing with PTSD for many years. And I also work with people, and of course, all the work at Commonweal and for people facing a cancer diagnosis and with BASE, the Barry and Survivors, which is a group near and dear to my heart that um, I was connected with and working with, you know, long before my diagnosis, but has 
I really enjoyed uh, another level relationship with those amazing women since my own diagnosis. Yeah. Um, I have to say one of the perks of being diagnosed, <laughs> <young>, right? <laughs> so it, it is a lot of working with people with cancer, but also um, chronic illness, life-threatening illness, chronic pain. I do a lot of work with people individually. And that's, you know, basically along the lines of what I learned from Desikachar and modeled after the KYM of using any of the practices and tools Mm -hmm. yoga offers, you know, whether it's gentle movement, breathing, meditation, guided imagery, Um, even I do some big chanting with my students if they ask for it. Mm -hmm. But I, I do have to say that again, for myself, and I try to sneak it in as much as possible and and maybe especially since my diagnosis but even long before just how much the yoga sutra has showed up for me and really has the capacity to help people and help us with these practical tools remember that we really can influence our experience Mm -hmm. whatever circumstance comes at us and that can be really helpful whether you're a homeless dad trying to get off heroin and who's you know still on methadone which is an amazing guy that we worked with for years or still dealing with PTSD or you know the trauma or violence of domestic abuse or trying to care for your family or whether it's a diagnosis um it's it's I'm still just constantly in awe and amazed at how well these tools show up for people yeah support them no matter what you're going through yeah that's great I want you know to have you back because this is obviously something that is so a part of your being and and that's just really incredible and vital and hard to find and I want you know also for more people to have the opportunity to to study with you are you doing a teacher training anytime soon so I do teach the sutras as part of a few other teachers trainings Mm -hmm. and I love that Mm -hmm. because then um I can show up and connect with this group and do what I care about yeah care deeply about and love and I feel like pass it on in a good way but it saves me the extra energy of the coordinating um of a whole training Mm -hmm. and and I had actually already reduced even before my diagnosis doing the trainings through HIF just because I wanted to be with my own family yeah Oh, so you'll do, okay, well, we'll talk more about it and I'll put more information at the end of the show or on the show notes or something like that so people can find you. Okay. Okay. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you thank so you for much. for letting me talk about my um, favorite uh, subject <laughs> of all time. Yeah. It's a joy. It's a, it's a joy to talk to you and to hear about, about it and I want to hear more, 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 okay. more. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, as always, for listening, everyone. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 26. I will put links to Kate's upcoming trainings and to the website for the Healing Yoga Foundation if you want to learn more about how to study with her or the work that she and her colleagues are doing. It's amazing work. And yeah, if you enjoyed the episode, let me know. You can leave a review on iTunes. I would love to know if this kind of focusing on direct yoga philosophy resonates with you and is is helpful for you in your practice and in your life. Until next week, enjoy your practice.